You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. I'm Marvin O'Connell, Professor Emeritus of History at the University of Notre Dame, and I'm delighted to be able to continue, indeed to conclude, these discussions of certain aspects of church history. In our recent meetings, we've talked about the Protestant Reformation as it occurred in Lutheran Germany and Anglican England. These two phenomena were different in many respects, although in the end, they shared many common characteristics as well. What I'd like to do in bulk in this, our last meeting together, is to talk about the Catholic response to the Reformation movement. But if I may, I'd like to begin with a kind of uh, pedantic review of terminology because these little sound bites can make a big difference in the way in which people approach either contemporary situations or historical ones. The words we use to describe the events related to the Christian religion in the 16th century are not very satisfactory. The least satisfactory of all is the word Protestant. Uh, the etymology of this word is the protest made by certain Lutheran politicians in the year 1529 against what they perceived to be certain aggressive actions on the part of Catholic politicians in Germany. And they drew up a statement which they called a protest. So they were protesting the fact that they weren't able to do as they chose to do, either religiously or politically. And unhappily, it seems to me, that name has attached itself to all of those denominations, to all of those individuals, all millions and millions of them in the four centuries since, who have adopted a religious stance similar to that of Luther. It is not a protest. That makes it sound as though Luther was some sort of naysayer, that he was protesting something. That's really not the case. What Luther was doing was presenting his own vision of what divine revelation meant with respect to the justification of the believing Christian. Whether you agree with it or not, and I don't agree with it, it was a positive statement. It wasn't just a protest. The word Reformation is similarly unsatisfactory, perhaps not as unsatisfactory as Protestant, but it still doesn't really give the true picture of what was happening. And that's because there are really two ways of looking at the word Reformation and its various derivatives, reform, reforming, and so forth. There is the popular idea, and that is that reform means improvement in institutions or individuals. The drunkard becomes reformed when he goes on the wagon. And there is, in the popular mind, I think you'll agree with me, a certain tendency to think of reform as always meaning improvement. One of the funniest things that happens in American politics is when, and this happens, I'm afraid, more often than it should, 
that a politician will run for re-election on a reform ticket. That is because what he's saying to us is that vote for me and I'll improve the political situation, whether locally or nationally. When in fact, if he's running for re-election, he's the one who put the institution that needs reform into place in the first instance. The trouble when you apply the term to the 16th century is that we all know that there were many, many abuses within the Catholic Church at the end of the Middle Ages that needed to be reformed, that needed to be improved. But once again, that wasn't Luther's primary message. For him, what had gone wrong with the church was not essentially, was not bad priests chasing maidens down dark lanes or popes who were selling indulgences. That wasn't the root of the problem. The root of the problem was bad doctrine. And he advanced the theory of justification by faith alone as a cure for that false doctrine, but also as a way in which the abuses would be reformed. So if you take the word reform or reformation in its etymological sense, then I think you're on the right path. Reform means to reshape, to give something a different shape than it had before, without actually making a commitment as to whether that reshaping is an improvement or not. Some people will think it is, some people will think it's not. But it seems important to me to emphasize that this is what Luther was all about. The problems would be solved if correct doctrine were taught. And so it was his task, as he saw it, to advance that doctrine and thus to give a new shape to things, doctrinally first of all, and then secondly, morally. Needless to say, he did so. Uh, he did reform, he did reshape. He redefined words like justification, predestination, sacrament, church. All of those things were reshaped as following from the insight that he thought he had to the process of justification. Well, if the term Reformation is less than satisfactory, the way in which historians have designated the Catholic response is also unsatisfactory because the historians have traditionally, or at least since the middle of the 19th century, have designated the Catholic acts of the late 16th century as the counter-Reformation. What that suggests is a kind of reaction to what the Protestants were doing. Well, there's some truth in that. There is certainly some truth in the fact that the stunning successes which the Protestant gospel enjoyed in Northern Europe, and to a lesser degree, but still a significant degree in France and Holland, this made the ecclesiastical authorities react. But there was also, and primarily so at work, a religious revival among Catholics, which was analogous to the religious revival that Protestantism marks. In fact, I think the best way to look at the long-term history of these years is to see that Europe was undergoing, from about 1500 onward, a tremendous religious revival. You see it in all aspects of public and private life. And that that revival had a Protestant side to it, but it also had a Catholic side to it, a Catholic aspect to it. 
that the same kind of seriousness about obligations that one takes upon oneself by being a baptized Christian were now seen just as clearly by the Catholics as by the Protestants. It is a phenomenon then that stretches out over a century, perhaps even a century and a half, and one which we can then characterize as an overall rise in seriousness, replacing some of the frivolity of religious life of the late Middle Ages. One phenomenon which seems to me to confirm this way of looking at these years is the phenomenon of conversion. I made a point in talking to you earlier about Luther's personal conversion, his acceptance of Christ as his personal savior, as we would say today. Well, this was true of all the great Protestant reformers, of Ulrich Zwingli in Switzerland, of John Calvin in France, and all the rest of them as the century wears on. But interestingly, and I think significantly, it was also true of the great Catholic ecclesiastics of the 16th century. Ignatius Loyola, the founder of the Society of Jesus, about whom we will talk a bit more in a few minutes, is a good example. He too experienced a strong personal conversion which brought him face to face with God and Christ in a way that was not conventional. Charles Borromeo, who was the Archbishop of Milan and who stands as the ideal Catholic bishop, the ideal carrier of the apostolic character in the Counter-Reformation period, he too had his personal conversion. Teresa of Avila, that no-nonsense woman, that remarkable leader, that reformer of her religious order, the Carmelites, that mystic whose reminiscences about the interior life, the spiritual life, grew out of her conversion experience. She had been, she tells us in her autobiography, a very ordinary and conventional nun who had performed her obligations faithfully, but without any fervor, without any fire, without any impetus that would spill over into the society in which she lived. And then she too had an ecstasy, an ecstasy in which her soul was touched in so intimate a way. Philip Neri, the apostle of Rome, as he was called in his lifetime, the founder of the oratory. This man, sometimes called the mystic in motley, that is to say, in the garb of a court jester, because of his tremendous sense of humor and the way in which he could poke fun at himself and at anybody who was at all pretentious. He too went through the conversion that then led him into a life of total dedication to the Christian faith and to those of his fellow believers. But when 1517 struck, the Catholic officials in Rome and elsewhere were totally unprepared for it. Few of them really could understand the issues that Luther was raising. The Pope of the time is unhappily typical. He was Leo X, a relatively young man. He was in his 30s. He belonged to the great banking family of Florence, the Medici. To him, the papacy was a prize to be won and something to be enjoyed. It probably didn't happen literally this way, but down through the years, a certain tradition or legend has grown up which shows Leo X 
standing in a marvelous gilded room in the papal palace, running his fingers through the piles of gold that are accumulated on his desk. And his remark, so the legend goes, God has chosen to give us the papacy, therefore let us enjoy it. Well, there was that kind of frivolousness which marked so much of the church on the eve of the Reformation. And Leo X was certainly an example of it, an unhappy one. Neither Leo nor his successors, nor indeed the Catholic authorities generally, could have predicted the rapid spread of Protestantism. We use the word inadequate as it is because it's the only one we have. They could not have predicted its rapid spread, nor the stunning success that it had among the peoples of Northern Europe. There had always been heterodoxies in the past. When we were talking about the very beginnings of the church, you may remember, we mentioned the heresy of docetism. There have always been, throughout the history of the church, always been these divergence from the conventional, from the traditional. And so Leo X and his successors and the other authorities tended to say, well, well, this too will pass away. But in fact, of course, it did not. From the beginning, however, there were those in high places, and certainly this reflected public sentiment, that a distinction had to be made between the traditional church, the ideal church, and the church corrupt, between customs that had become eroded by selfishness and greed and other perversions, and the genuine testament which Jesus had given to the apostles and which had been passed down through 15 centuries. And so, with that in mind, there were people in high places, in the College of Cardinals specifically, who wanted to go as far as they could to meet the Lutheran objections, to take concrete steps whereby the divisions could be healed. Perhaps until 1532 or 1537, let's say, within 15 to 20 years of Luther's posting of the 95 Theses, most Europeans still hoped that the divisions could be healed. They counted perhaps too much on Martin Luther's own quite notorious regret at having broken the unity of the church. He did not want to do that. He always said he had to because the authorities had corrupted true doctrine. But there was always, so it was assumed, a path to reconciliation on his part. His most famous disciple, Philip Melanchthon, who proved to be even a more notable theological thinker than Luther himself, was very sympathetic to some kind of ecumenical agreement, some way in which compromise could be reached and the schism ended. But John Calvin, the French reformer, in a very unsentimental sort of man, a man of hard commitment, it was clear from the time that he began to assert leadership over the Protestant movement as Luther grew older and frailer that there would be no compromise, there would be no end to the divisions. They were too deep and too long-lasting. But on the Catholic side, let me repeat, there were 
where there were those who hoped for and were willing to work toward some kind of accommodation, let us call it. Among those, and I'll just mention the one example, was Thomas DeVio, who is known to us through his title rather than through that family and Christian name, Cardinal Cajetan. Caetanus was the town in which he was born, and when he was given the cardinal's rank, he became known as Cardinal Cajetan. He was the most brilliant and learned theologian of his time. Indeed, one of the great theologians of all time. A very profound thinker and one who could analyze Revelation in a way that was always discriminating and illuminating. But he was more than that. As a cardinal, he was a member of the Pope's own official family, the so-called Roman Curia. And it was he, in 1518, the year after Luther had posted his theses and begun his movement, it was he, Cajetan, who was sent to Germany to see if some kind of accommodation could be reached. He had other objectives in this diplomatic trip sent by the Pope to Germany. The Lutheran matter was not considered yet serious enough to demand his full attention. But he did meet with Martin Luther and exchanged views with the Augustinian friar, as Luther still was, in Augsburg in Germany in 1518. It was a private meeting, no doubt conducted in the Latin which both of them spoke. We don't know any of the details except what Luther said later because Cajetan no doubt made a report, but it hasn't survived. At any rate, Luther said that it was a dialogue of the deaf, because Cajetan's instructions were to receive Luther's submission and nothing else. He was not there to argue. He was there to exert and assert the magisterium of the College of Bishops, which, of course, pretended, claimed, and in my view, indeed was, the continuation of the Apostolic College. Luther was not prepared to do this. And so their voices were raised, and some rather hot argument followed, although Luther in later years said that Cajetan had treated him with every courtesy. But Cajetan came home from this confrontation convinced that there were indeed some steps that could be taken that might soften the divisions. And in a very famous memo that he wrote in 1530, he suggested to the Pope of the time, who was Clement VII, and to the other members of the Roman Curia, certain steps that might be taken to quiet the opposition of Luther and the other Protestants. They sound strangely modern, strangely contemporary, I mean, to us. Here is what he proposed, among other things. He said, one step we could take is to have a vernacular liturgy. Not the Latin liturgy that, of course, we've had ever since the time of St. Peter, but to introduce, at least into Germany, a vernacular liturgy. A second thing he suggested was that the celibacy of the secular clergy could be waived. That sounds, doesn't it, like a very contemporary debate going on among Catholics and that it should have been suggested by Cajetan of all people in 1530 is rather surprising. However, the distinction should carefully be made any time this matter of celibacy arises, whether in the 
fourth decade of the 16th century or the last decade of the 20th century, that what he was talking about was the secular clergy, not the religious, not the monks or friars, not those who took vows. You see, that's the problem with this debate, I think. Let me try a quick tangent. Religious Jesuits, Dominicans, Franciscans, Benedictines, the rest of them, take the vows of poverty, chastity, which is the one key one here, and obedience. The secular clergy do not. The secular clergy, like myself, promise not to marry or to indulge in sexual activity of any kind. Of course, we, obviously that would be part of not being married. The reason that the monk swears chastity is that he wants to imitate Christ in a more direct way, that Jesus was not married and did not indulge in sexual life. So, therefore, if you want to imitate him most perfectly, then you will refrain in the same fashion. But the celibacy of the secular clergy is very different. It is taken upon the one committed to it in order that he might be more able to serve the Christian people. And that, of course, is what the debate should be about. It should be about whether or not a married secular clergy could serve the Christian people better than an unmarried Catholic clergy. What is astonishing, really, is that this question should have arisen in Cajetan's mind and for him to be ready to compromise about it. The last chance for reconciliation came probably in the year 1541, and there was a great conference held in Regensburg, the German town to which came Philip Melanchthon, Luther's lieutenant, Luther was still alive, and several other Lutheran leaders. And from Rome came Cardinal Contarini, who was a colleague and an ally of Cajetan, and very, very anxious, if possible, to find some mode of accommodation. And their conferences were held courteously but distantly, and nothing was accomplished. Four years later came another conference. This one in the north Italian town of Trent. It opened on October 13, 1545, in the dark and gloomy cathedral, which is still there, still there for tourists like me to prowl around inside it. And outside, tower the Dolomite Alps, these snow-capped mountains, wonderfully beautiful scene. On that day, there was a solemn mass of the Holy Ghost sung in the presence of the 34 bishops who had come from various parts of the Catholic world to try and see if there was some way to solve the problems of the ecclesiastical abuses which antedate the Reformation, and secondly, the doctrinal challenges which had been offered by Luther and now increasingly by John Calvin. This is considered still by us Catholics the 19th Ecumenical Council, a successor to the councils of Nicaea and Ephesus and Chalcedon, about which we talked on an earlier occasion. After the Mass, one of the three officers, their official title was legate, one of the three legates appointed by Pope Paul III to preside over this meeting, this council, this Council of Trent, gave an address. He was a most remarkable man, and his address was most remarkable too, as we shall see in a moment. 
His name was Reginald Pole, Cardinal Reginald Pole. He was an Englishman. Indeed, he was a, a cousin of King Henry VIII. He belonged to the Yorkist wing of the royal family, the White Rose of York. And as such, he could be considered sometime in the future, if Henry VIII, for example, had had no legitimate children, as a possible claimant to the throne. But Henry VIII, the Tudor, the representative of the Red Rose of Lancaster, had no time for Pole. Indeed, Henry VIII executed Cardinal Pole's mother, and Cardinal Pole himself, since he refused to accept the supremacy of the king over the church, left England and went to Rome, he was constantly dogged by people who tried to assassinate him. So we are not dealing here with a member of the Hoi Polloi. This was one of the great figures from one of the great families from one of the great nations of Europe. In his speech, he said, among other things, it is we bishops who are most responsible for all the evils now burdening the flock of Christ. We cannot even name any other cause than ourselves. If God punished us as we deserve, we should have been long since as Sodom and Gomorrah. And after ticking off the abuses, simony, greed, luxurious living, wild, lustful sexuality, injustice, superstition, but greed most of all, he said, why dwell on this shameful subject? Because unless we place our own sinful responsibility in front of our minds, it is useless to call upon the Holy Spirit for help. It seems to me that the most remarkable thing about the Council of Trent, which defined Catholic life for 400 years, the most remarkable thing about it was it being a case of people who literally pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps. Those who were enmeshed in a corrupt system were the ones who took it upon themselves to try to reform that system and thereby to deprive themselves of some of the unholy benefits that they had been enjoying. This surely was Pohl's point. And it was one that was accepted with somber reality by those bishops listening to him. Maybe the best example, there are many, many unhappy examples, perhaps the best example of this bootstraps analogy I made is the career of the Pope who summoned the Council of Trent. His name was Alessandro Farnese. He was elected Pope in 1534, but before that, when he was a very young man, really a teenager, his sister, Giulia Farnese, who was known in Rome in the late 1490s as Giulia la Bella, Giulia the Beautiful, was the mistress of the worst of all the Renaissance popes, Alexander VI. And it was she, forgive me for this frivolity, but I'm going to use it anyway, pillow talk included, getting the Pope to promote her little brother. And so the Pope, Alexander VI, a dreadful man in every respect, indeed promoted Julia's little brother, Alessandro, and he became a bishop when he was 18 years old, became a cardinal when he was 25. 
his own life was, as far as his uh, sexual appetites were concerned, was perfectly shameful. In a whole series of liaisons, he sired at least four children that we know about. A man who stands unhappily as almost an imitation of the Alexander VI who first promoted him. But then, struck by all the troubles that had descended upon the church, including the terrible sack of Rome in 1527 by the imperial troops of Charles V, a deed which sobered up a great many ecclesiastics because it was clear to see that, at least they thought so, that this was God's punishment for their own misdeeds. When he was elected Pope in 1534, he took the name Paul III, and he did indeed correct his life. He knew that something had to be done, and he knew that his own past had scarcely prepared him to be a great reformer, but he was willing to try. And the only solution that he could think of was some kind of accommodation with the Protestants. That failed. And the only other way in which some solution could be found to First, the doctrinal revolution initiated by Luther, and secondly, the abuses in the church which fed the success of the Lutheran movement was to call an ecumenical council. He had great difficulty in doing so. Not only the difficulties of his own past and his own seamy reputation, but also the resistance that he found among his close associates in the Roman Curia. Also by the constitutional complications. Luther, in one of his most expansive moments, had called upon the Christian world to call a great council to settle all these problems. Unfortunately, he had already said that he wouldn't accept a council any more than he would accept a pope who didn't agree with him on justification. But leaving that aside, there was a fear that if the Pope called a council, it would be because he was knuckling under, so to speak, to Luther. And then there were the political problems. Nothing is more difficult in the late 20th century to appreciate than the mixture of the secular and the sacred that prevailed in earlier times. Separation of church and state was undreamed of in these days, in these years. Religion for us, in what commentators often call the post-Christian era, is a private matter. It was not a private matter in the 16th century. Religion was completely intertwined with public life. For example, no one imagined that any nation could survive unless it had religious uniformity. So you have the persecution of the Catholics by Queen Elizabeth. And interestingly enough, the, and I think informatively enough, the very name of the law that she had passed through Parliament, the Act of Uniformity, we must all be uniform in our religious beliefs if the secular society is to survive. A lot of commentators have said that religion was the ideology of the 16th century, by which they mean that as fascism and communism and liberalism have been the intellectual engine which has driven so much of the 20th century, including its terrible wars and disputes, so religion was in the 16th century.
This is all preface to mentioning the political difficulties that Paul III had in calling the council. To oversimplify greatly, there were two Catholic sovereigns whom the Pope had to satisfy. There was Charles V, who was King of Spain, but also Emperor of Germany. And there was Francis I, who was the King of France. These two were in perpetual antagonism toward one another, at war with each other more often than not. And either one of them would want to dominate the church in a Caesaropapistic fashion if he could. Charles, because of his interests in Germany, was most interested in solving the Reformation crisis and all the divisions that that had involved by addressing the abuses about which German Protestants were complaining. Francis I, on the other hand, in order to keep Charles occupied, busy, and distracted, didn't want a solution in Germany. He wanted the religious quarrels to continue there because that weakened his political enemy. This was a kind of conundrum that Paul III had to deal with. And try as he might, he could not find a way out of it for many, many years. Because the point is, perhaps not altogether clear without my saying it, if the king of France said, I'm not going to support this council and I won't let any of my bishops go to it, or Charles do the same thing in Spain and Germany, there'd be no council. Indeed, that's what happened. Paul III summoned an ecumenical council twice, the first time after his election in 1537, and then again shortly after the meeting at Regensburg, which I mentioned a moment ago, between Melanchthon and Contarini, summoned another one, and nobody came. You know that old saying, that old fear I suppose any of us has, what if you had a party and nobody came? Well, the Pope had a party, nobody showed up was not until 1545 that the Council of Trent was finally convoked. And it was a, a hard thing even then because, as I said a moment ago, only 34 bishops appeared. Eventually, the number grew to more than 200. But in the beginning, it was very, very shaky indeed. The first problem that had to be faced at Trent was how to proceed. The Emperor Charles was particularly anxious that the abuses be addressed by the council first. The Pope, on his side, was equally anxious that the doctrinal problems or challenges raised by Luther and the other Protestants be addressed first. They each had a vested interest, if you like. What the Emperor was most interested in was calming the political scene in Germany. What the Pope was most interested in, now in his reformed state, no longer the, uh, the playboy of earlier years, what he was most interested in was asserting the doctrinal primacy of the Petrine office and to restore purity of doctrine as he understood it and as the Apostolic College had passed it on to him. Well, they came up with an ingenious compromise. The council met day by day, and the agenda was drawn up in such a way that on day one, on Monday, let's say, they would treat of the abuses. On Tuesday, they'd treat of doctrine. On Wednesday, abuses again. On Thursday, doctrine. And so it went. 
every other day, one of the two subjects was addressed. And this was a compromise which was accepted by all sides. And so the council, so long coming into being, so shaky at first, now began its substantive work. It met on three different occasions between 1545 and 1563. In other words, it was never adjourned, except what the lawyers call sign a die. It was adjourned, but not finished. And it was understood that it would be continued at a later time. Between 1545 and 1547, then after a lapse of four years of rather short meeting in 1551-52, and finally the last meeting, 1562 and 63. There are 18 years involved here, the council actually sat about 50 months altogether, or a little more than four years, on these three different times. They followed the procedure which I suggested a moment ago. Doctrine, abuse, doctrine, abuse. The legates, the pope's representatives, set the agenda. But any father of the council could introduce anything he wanted to, like, you might say, a private bill in Congress, rather than a bill offered by the Republican or Democratic leadership in Congress. Also the technical word father. Anybody at a council who has the right to vote, which would be for all practical purposes the bishops, had the technical title father, father of the council. Following that every other day sort of arrangement, the discussions would start with what was called a particular congregation. This was a meeting of the theologians and canon lawyers and other experts who were not fathers of the council, but who were experts in their field, who would then discuss the agenda point which the legates brought to their attention. The fathers of the council, the bishops, the people who had a vote, were in attendance at these particular congregations and no doubt learned a good deal from them. The second stage in all this was the general congregation. That was a debate over the issues, whether of reforming abuses or of doctrine. This was the debate between or among the fathers themselves. And finally, when they got to the end of the debate on one particular point, they then would agree to a text which would be incorporated into the official documentation of the council. And then finally, a session. That's the other technical word if you'll pardon my using these technical terms. A session was a public meeting at which the text of the decree, which had been thrashed out in the particular congregation, the general congregation, in which this text was read out, was formally approved, where the vote was taken formally, and then promulgated. This was always done in the cathedral or some church in the town because it was considered a liturgical act. Throughout the Council of Trent, there were a total of 25 sessions. 17 of them were substantive, dealt with substantive issues. The other eight were ceremonial in one fashion or another. And what came out of all of this in the documentation was the so-called decrees and canons. The decrees of the Council of Trent, or any council for that matter, are those formal documents which explain the teaching of the council, which is, of course, the teaching of the Catholic Church, in some detail. The canons are brief statements of doctrine which were usually expressed in a negative way. If you don't believe there are three persons in the Trinity, then you should be condemned. That's the way a canon would read. Or I should be more to the point, shouldn't I? 
If you don't think that the performance of good works is part of the justification process, then you deserve condemnation. If you think that scripture alone is where we find the truths of our religion, then you deserve to be condemned. That is what is called the canon of the council. The debates were of a very high level. Let me give you just one example. Of course, it's really the most important example. The fathers of the council, aided by their experts, their theologians and canon lawyers, struggled with the question of justification, looking at it from every possible angle, taking into account every possible orthodox opinion. It took them seven months, seven months of very hard work before they were able to come up with a decree that was agreed to by all of them. By the way, it should be said that at Trent and at any other council, there must be moral unanimity on any issue that becomes a part of the official teaching of the council. It's not enough to have a majority. It's not enough to have 51%. If the best you can get is a simple majority, then the council steps away from that issue and does not decide it. Moral unanimity means that there could be a very trifling number of the fathers who would disagree with the decree or the canon. The number would have to be very small indeed. Well, what solutions did the Council of Trent come up with? In the area of doctrine, I think it's fair to say that the burden of what the Council had to say was a reassertion of the doctrine of good works. Refined now by their own debate and argument and insights, but nevertheless, to put it negatively, a repudiation of Luther's views. This was also true of another decree of great complexity, the one on original sin. What Luther protested was total depravity. The fathers of the council said, we must avoid Pelagianism, but it is not Pelagianism, they maintained, to say that although we are damaged by original sin, we are not rendered incapable of performing good works. And as the fathers of the council made their doctrinal decisions in a conservative but not reactionary way, so also they were conservative in trying to put together an institution which could ride out the abuses that had so besmirched the Christian face over the preceding century or so. Very specific new laws were passed against absenteeism, pluralism among clerics. A priest would have ten parishes and, of course, neglect nine of them, probably neglect all ten of them. One very interesting and perhaps even poignant assertion of the Fathers of the Council deserves to be remembered. They made it clear that, in theory, money indulgences were perfectly appropriate, that a good work could be an almsgiving, and would therefore deserve, under the doctrine of indulgences, the kind of favor which could be given to a person performing a good work. But, they said, since money indulgences open themselves so readily to corruption, and since they can be so readily manipulated, they were from that time on forbidden. I went into some detail about particular congregation, general congregation, and all the other technicalities connected with the Council of Trent, because I think as we conclude this discussion, it is vitally important to understand that the Council was very deliberate in its actions. 
It wasn't simply reacting to an unpleasant situation. It was a creative endeavor. And just as I would say, as a Catholic, that Luther's work was creative but wrong, Trent's work was creative and right. To sum up then, the Council of Trent made it possible for Catholics to regain their confidence. The Council had settled the most perplexing doctrinal problems. It had asserted that the gloomy and introspective view of human nature which Luther propounded was wrong, that human beings were indeed capable of forging forward, of doing good works, of changing the face of the world, if you like. The Council had also initiated, and I underscore that word, initiated internal reform. Reform was not accomplished overnight. The decrees of the Council of Trent weren't even allowed into France in any formal way. They began to have their effect only a hundred years after the Council adjourned. But the beginnings of reform, the beginnings of, of a serious application of the gospel to the lives of Catholic men and women everywhere in what now remains as Catholic Europe was made possible. There were other ramifications. There came to be, as a result of the Counter-Reformation, a heightened Latinization of the Church. The areas lost to Protestantism were mostly in Northern Europe. There were some exceptions. Ireland would be an exception. But for the most part, the influence now upon the Catholic community will be heavily Italian, Spanish, and then a little later, French. Finally, one can say that the Council of Trent and the movements that came after it fulfilling the mandates of the Council, put a great emphasis upon the importance of the institutional apparatus of the Church. Luther had said, in effect, that the Church is really an invisible body, the body of the elect, those few whom God has chosen. That's the Church, the true Church. Not at all, said Trent. The Church is the body of the faithful, physical and spiritual. It is made up of institutional commitments as well as personal commitments. And this is a lesson that has been well learned and has served us well over all these years. The Counter-Reformation is clearly over. We can legitimately speak of it now as a unit with a beginning, a middle, and an end. There are elements of the Catholic Counter-Reformation that we should set aside and we are doing so, and rightly so. But its essential achievement we cannot put aside. As Mr. Lincoln said when we first began our discussions together, ladies and gentlemen, we cannot escape history. The Counter-Reformation is part of our spiritual lifeblood, as much as the ancient church is, as the Church of the Middle Ages is. It has all been enveloped into us, and we who now carry the banner can no more repudiate our past than we can repudiate ourselves. And if it seems that all around today there brood dark shadows of incomprehension and indifference and sometimes hostility, we have to remember what Jesus said. He said it as surely to us as he did to the apostles. Do not be afraid, little flock. You are my friends, and I am with you to the consummation of the world. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content.
free.